Welcome everybody to this Bicom webinar. This is actually a live podcast, um, so thank you all for joining us. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom here in Jerusalem. Alongside me is my colleague, Kira Lewis, who's in London, and our special guest, Tal Shalev, who I presume is in Tel Aviv. Yeah, give a time almost. Give a time, okay, excellent. Um, I'm gonna begin by asking Tal a series of questions, and then for the second half, we will encourage questions from the audience as well. So if you have a question, please type them into the chat box and we will do our best to get to as many of them as possible. So I think this is really interesting timing. We're here the second week in January, difficult days in Israeli politics, um, fateful days where the essence of the structure of the government, the limitations of the judiciary are about to be debated in parliament. In parallel, we've already seen calls from the opposition calling for demonstrators to take to the streets and defend civil liberties. Just yesterday, we heard some quite uh, difficult rhetoric from some new new members of Knesset um, calling for opposition figures, including the leader of the opposition, Lapid, and former IDF chief of staff, calling them enemies of the state that should be uh, that should be arrested. Even um, Minister Ben Gvir kind of rode back from some of that from from his own uh, from his own MKs. Um, we're here to discuss these issues: the new government, new legislation, domestic policy, the balance between religion and state and hopefully a little bit of foreign policy too. Um, I'm delighted to introduce our special guest, Tal Shalev, who is a political correspondent for the popular Walla News website, and one of the most respected political commentators and insiders in Israeli politics. So Tal, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, happy to be here. So if I can start uh, maybe with a big question to start off with, um, much discussion and criticism of the composition of the new government, but will this be a government that Netanyahu can form in his own image? Can he control the extremists? And, uh, and if so, how is he going to do that? So I think the answer to that depends on who you ask, of course. If you ask Netanyahu, he's in control of everything. Um, um, but it appears to be just from, you know, uh, observing the coalition in its in the two months it took to form the coalition and the two weeks that have passed since, it, since it's been since its inauguration. It appears to be that Netanyahu is not in control or at least not in full control uh, of what is happening. Uh, what basically we've been seeing since the, go the government was sworn in on two Thursdays ago um, almost every day there is some kind of spark or fire lit and uh, last week we had Ben Gvir visit Temple Mount just a week after he becomes a minister, less than a week after he becomes minister. And most importantly, I think uh, Netanyahu's justice minister, Yariv Levine, who presented his very dramatic, uh, some would say destructive plan for the uh, uh, judicial, uh, for a judicial reform, he didn't even wait a week of being in office before he presented his plan. Um, and they already started this today. They had the first debate in the Knesset committee, um, also led by someone who might be even more extremist than Yariv Levine, if that's even possible, Simcha Rotman, who is from uh, Smotrich's party, and he's heading the uh, legislative, uh, he's the head of the um, um, judicial committee in the, in the Knesset, supervising the government, well, of course, uh, it seems like uh, Levine might even have to, you know, calm down Simcha Rotman's enthusiasm because he's even more enthusiastic than him. 
and of course, uh, you, you're right that uh, all of this has sparked a wave of civil protest. We also had early this week, the week opened with the first coalition crisis uh, with the Haredi parties and with uh, the, new, um, the new housing minister, Itzhak Goldknopf, who is the leader of Agudat Israel. On Sunday morning, he sends a threatening letter to Netanyahu and to the transportation minister, Miri Regev, warning them from uh, um, construction uh, projects being conducted on the train during, the, during Shabbat and warning from a coalition crisis. And in all of this, you, Netanyahu is A, not doing much to calm down the flames. I mean, um, Levine's plan has kind of uh, raised red flags all around. Um, and Netanyahu has so far given him full support uh, and full backing for the plan, even though we know that originally Netanyahu does not support these kind of steps. Uh, we know from, yeah, I mean, until he became a criminal, uh, it, 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 until his own criminal trouble started, he didn't have any interest in these. Uh, and it appears to be that it's just undisciplined, that there's no order, uh, because if you ask, have done without Ben Gvir's visit to Temple Mount last week, opening his first uh, week with a, a UN Security Council convention, I think he would rather open, not have that. And I also think that uh, this uh, Saturday, there's going to be a second week, uh, second week of protests and demonstrations in Tel Aviv. I expect it to be much wider than uh, the last one. The last one had a few dozens of thousands who came to Tel Aviv to protest. I expect it to at least double itself this week because Ben Gvir has been also not helping to calm down the, the, the unrest, but rather uh, inflaming the unrest by uh, um, releasing statements and giving directives to the police to be more forceful against these uh, demonstrators. And I think that will be, the counter reaction will be that much more people are going to come to the demonstrations uh, um, this week. And altogether, there's a sense of unrest. And the feeling is that uh, um, Netanyahu just uh, either doesn't want to control it, doesn't want to calm down the situation, or he can't calm down the situation. And if you ask me, I think it's the latter. I think that uh, um, throughout the coalition negotiations, we saw how Netanyahu was basically blackmailed by his coalition partners. He basically gave them whatever they wanted, uh, the most detailed coalition agreements ever with budgets, authorities, um, of course, powers that he gave to Ben Gvir and Smotrich, unprecedented uh, agreements. And I, the notion that uh, his um, confidence were saying, were, were spreading was that, uh, um, that we can put down everything on paper in the agreement, but then when the government is established, we can you know, ditch some of the commitments. But so far, it doesn't seem that Netanyahu is in control of the government enough to even, if, if push comes to shove, it's not clear that Netanyahu is strong enough um, or has the standing in front of his partners and that his partners are not stronger than him. Like, and now with Yariv Levine, it's a different dynamic, right? Yariv Levine is Netanyahu's ultimate conf confident and ultimate loyalist. Um, but it's not clear how much Netanyahu is using 
Yariv Levin for his own legal interests and how much Yariv Levin, who is a staunch ideologist, is using Netanyahu for his own interests, implementing this very radical reform that in any other case would probably not be promoted because Netanyahu would probably have stopped it. Lots of themes there. Thank you, Tal, that I want to, I want to pick up on. But perhaps we should start, as you mentioned, on the issues of, uh, of the legislative reform and then ju judicial reform. Um, just maybe kind of, if you can, pronounce the, uh, the issues, help, help our audience understand the significance of the override and the idea of, of cancelling the claim of reasonability um, and kind of what the, what the current government's justification for that would be. <clears throat> so... Um, at large, the, the, you know, the, the, the basic premise has to be that Israel doesn't have a constitution and that uh, the only thing that protects civil rights in Israel are basic laws, uh, special laws that the Knesset uh, and the, of course, the uh, Declaration of Independence, which enshrines equality in front of the law. But these have been, uh, so, so the protections of democracy in Israel are not, of Israeli democracy are not very strong. And uh, there's um, a constant tension between, there's been a constant tension between uh, the Supreme Court and the politicians for the past uh, 31 years, since the Knesset first legislated the basic law of human dignity, which basically gave the Supreme Court the power to disqualify regular bills. Um, and of course, the Supreme Court hasn't really disqualified that many bills in that time, 22 bills in 30 years. It's not too much. It's not as if the court um, has been too proactive, but according to the right, it has been proactive. And especially according to far right conservatives like Yariv Levin, who basically feels that the uh, court limits um, has been limit has been limiting the government and has been uh, um, distorting democracy or distorting uh, the the rule of the people by some of its rulings. There's been a few rulings over the years that yes, the court did uh, rule in a way that was unpopular for the right. Most notably, um, in 2017, when the uh, Supreme Court disqualified a bill that banned. Uh, work immigration from Africa and uh, said that uh, um, and disqualified the plans that the government had in order to deport these uh, um, the illegal immigrants. And that kind of is uh, created a huge uproar in the right, of course, which has been inflamed even more by Netanyahu's own quest against the legal apparatus in his own case. And it kind of coincides. Now, what Yariv Levine is suggesting Yariv Levin, and we have to give it to him. This is really his ideology. He's been preaching for it since the first, since he entered the Knesset in 2009. Um, he, he, and all of the bills that he's promoting now basically are there in the Knesset, have been submitted in the Knesset in the past decade or so, but Netanyahu never let them move forward. So there are a few things that Yariv Levin wants to take care of. You mentioned uh, the override clause. Yariv Levin actually is not such a, a fan of the override clause. Um, Yariv Levin does want to have a basic bill that will, a basic bill about legislation that will protect the Knesset legislation and limit the ability 
of the of the judges to disqualify bills it also impose restrictions and minimum you know minimum um a minimum uh, for disqual a minimum of judges needed to disqualify a bill um but he is promoting an override clause as part of his plan mainly by the way because of the demands of the ultra orthodox parties who want the override clause in order to override the Supreme Court's decision regarding the military draft and the exemption, uh, the Haredi exemption from military draft. He also, his plan also includes canceling, as you said, the clause of reasonability, which basically is one of the clauses that the, that the Supreme Court has for judicial criticism. Um, it's not enshrined in law, it's just by um, in Supreme Court rulings. That um, and that basically is the basis that the Supreme Court might disqualify Ariadne right now from uh, from uh, serving as prime minister. So there's a the, the the question of reasonability is what helps the Supreme Court uh, protect basically civil rights or even uh, just uh, civil um, just the civilians from unreasonable decisions made by the government or by other, uh, um, other governmental branches. Um, and Yariv Levin wants to cancel that. He says his, his um, explanation, his reasoning, he says that uh, why does the Supreme Court, why can some Supreme Court decide for me, for the people what's reasonable? Why do they have a better sense of reasonability than, I don't know, one almost one million voters who voted uh, for um, for the Likud, uh, one million voters who voted for the Likud, or five hundred million that voted for Shas. Why does it? Uh, why do the judges have a better sense of reasonability than us? There's also a part of Yariv Levin's plan um, to cancel the legal advisors inside the governmental ministries. Um, basically, what the Likud wants is to have politically appointed legal advisors, as opposed to other places like in the United States where there's always a turnover when there's a change of power. Here, the legal advisors uh, are um, regular workers in the offices and the ministers have no impact on who they are and they wanna push them away and replace that uh, with uh, politically appointed uh, um, legal advisors. And all in all, you know, if, if Yariv Levin's plan is implemented and it does reach the final uh, stages of legislation, then the Supreme Court will, ah, there's another part, which I forgot, which is also the judges- the selection. The, the selection process. Yes, very important. Uh, yeah, the, the current uh, judges, judge selection process is, um, committee is comprised out of uh, um, three judges, two lawyers, um, and four politicians, uh, meaning that, but there's a minimum of seven out of 10 that you need uh, um, in order to approve a judge, meaning that the judges can basically veto any other, any of the candidates if they want. They have a block, the judges. Yariv Levin wants to change that and to make it basically impossible for the judges uh, to block any appointment, um, increase the power of the politicians um, and kick out the lawyers, have the lawyers not be part of the process, but instead have two public representatives, which will be appointed by the government. So basically wants to totally politicize the Supreme Court 
selection, not only Supreme Court, the judge, all the judges, uh, the judiciary selection process. And um, also he wants to, to today the, uh, the president of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court head is appointed by seniority. The most senior judge is the uh, president of the Supreme Court. Yariv Levin wants to cancel that and to have the president of the Supreme Court be appointed by the Knesset, elected by the Knesset, which is another politicization of the process. So if you take his whole plan altogether, um, it weakens the Supreme Court, it weakens the judges, it weakens the whole legal apparatus, and it dramatically increases uh, the power of the politicians and especially the power of the majority in the government in an, un by the way, in a disproportional way, uh, and um, to to what the election uh, um, to election results will be, his again his reasoning is about strengthening democracy and bringing the power back to the people. Um, but of course, um, a majority, an overwhelming majority of uh, the legal apparatus and the democratic apparatus are against this because uh, it will leave minorities and civil rights in Israel with no protection. If an override clause will be passed, the current version is that they're talking about is just an override clause of 61 lawmakers, meaning that just a simple majority can decide to override the Supreme Court bill, um, and um, that's where that's that's the main points of his reform. Thank you. I mean, so I mean, what would you, if you were predicting in terms of uh, comparing what was laid out and what you've explained? just now in terms of what will eventually pass as legislation. Um, where, do you think, where, where do you think that will take us? Do you think there is scope for compromise or will the majority, the government, has the majority be able to, to pass through it in, its, in the form that uh, Levine is presenting? Um, uh, unfortunately, I do not see um, much room for compromise. I don't see any willingness or motivation for compromise from both Yariv Levine's side and especially Simcha Rotman who will be leading the process um, in, the, in the Knesset, who will be actually handling the legislation and actually working on it. Um, and unfortunately, at the same time, um, the discourse surrounding the, the plan and the reform is, uh, is deteriorating and escalating and everything is becoming very, very loaded. The only thing I think that can stop this plan from full implementation or perhaps soften it will be if Netanyahu decides that he doesn't want to go all the way. And here you have two versions, right? Yeah, there's some people think that Netanyahu will be will stop at no by no means in order to get out of trial. Um, the other one says that perhaps that the will will have the old responsible Netanyahu. Um, emerge once again, and I, I, I can't say at the moment, it doesn't seem that Netanyahu wants to stop Yariv Levin. To be honest, none of the current plans that Yariv Levin is promoting actually helps Netanyahu at this point with his trial. Um, but uh, the total chaos, well, at least his, his opponents think that the to total chaos in the judicial system is served eventually, the, the goal is eventually to alter his trial or stop his trial or get him out of trial. 
Thank you. If I can change, change topic, and you mentioned before about kind of the, uh, the, co the coalition crisis at the beginning of the week and the leader of the uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, um, UTJ party with their, with their demands over stopping the work of public services, repairs on the, on the Shabbat, etc. Um, and the idea we've seen the pushback from the local, local councils about the, uh, the what, again, what was mentioned in the coalition agreement about the, uh, the budgetary requirements for private uh, ultra-Orthodox schools. Um, and bearing in mind as well kind of Netanyahu's commitment to remain the status quo with regard to religious and state, where do you see those issues, kind of the key areas of friction and how that playing out within the coalition? Well, um, I think first of all, that the issue of religion and state is much more important for Netanyahu than the other issues. Uh, it's one of the touchy issues for the Likud, because at the end of the day, the Likud voters are not ultra-Orthodox or they're not as religious as Netanyahu's allies are. Um, and, and, and Netanyahu could be damaged, the Likud could be damaged by uh, the perception that they are, you know, blackmailed by their, uh, uh, by their um, partners, by their religious and fundamentalist partners. So um, I don't think, I think that Netanyahu, at least the things that have to do with legislation, he will try to, you know, um, delay any changes to the status quo. That being said, the status quo can change in small things. There doesn't have to be large things that it changes in. It's especially like, for instance, eventually, Miri Regev did decide to narrow this week, the, who's the transportation minister, she did order, she did put out a directive to, um, to limit, to, um, to reduce the works, the work uh, on the trail, uh, on the rail train, train rails uh, on Shabbat. Um, and I think that uh, we'll have we'll see the we'll see the main clash in that ahead of the budget. Uh, the government has to pass a budget within three or four months, um, and then Netanyahu will have to deal with the huge budget that he promised um, the uh, the ultra orthodox parties, alongside with the budget limits that uh, um, that are that are going to you know just regular budgetary restrictions. Um, but I basically think again that Netanyahu is not necessarily in control. He has a huge government with many made-up ministries and many ministers, and it's going and it's going to be a mess, right? So things can happen slowly. And you know, in order to change the status quo, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone, you know, um, operating or stopping a train on Shabbat. Even giving more money for Haredis in house, housing construction or even diverting more money to Haredi that, and, and of course it's not equivalent to the tax, to the tax paying from this community. That's a change of the status quo. Now regarding the education system, um, Netanyahu, yes, he's gonna have a lot of civil unrest. Uh, it, the, the current atmosphere is, um, and you saw that in the municipal, there's a municipal awakening against the government. Um, so I think that Netanyahu will be very cautious to deal with anything that has to do with religious and state, but his partners might be dragging him there, even though he he's trying to stay away and actually maintain the status quo. And another thing should be said about Netanyahu's you know, declarations. 
he says one thing one day and then the other day it doesn't really happen or it doesn't really matter what he said. Okay, um, a different type of question. Um, wonder if you could give us your experience as an insider on kind of what the, uh, a little bit of color from the Knesset um, of, what, of what the atmosphere is like uh, these days. Um, I know that when I, when I take uh, our BICOM delegations into the Knesset, I'll often make a point of pointing out that in the cafeteria, you will see kind of um, Arab MKs are having lunch with, with hard right MKs who, in the, who have just clashed in the, in the plenary, but are kind of friends behind the scene. Um, do you think that level of friendship and bipartisan cooperation is there or has it kind of already vanished and kind of uh, disappeared because of the, the ill feeling between the sides? Look, behind the scenes, everyone are, there are a lot of friendships, uh, but there's no bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is dead from the previous government. Netanyahu and Dalikud killed the bipartisanship uh, with their very, very uh, mean opposition, uh, being very mean and un, un, uh, co non-cooperative opposition. Um, that being said, this opposition is more responsible. And of course, they won't vote against anything that might jeopardize anything in Israel. Ironically enough, this week, the Knesset approved the uh, regulation bills in Judea and Samaria, which broke down the last government, which broke down the Bennett-Lapid government. I, wa I was watching the vote in the plenum and it was, it was so ironic. There was no one there. No, there were like five MKs there because everyone supported it. So, um, so, so I think, so, so what were, what was the question again? Sorry. Well, just a bit of a bit of the, uh, the, uh, the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are people who are friends, but um, and and it's not as people. It's not as if there's a feeling that every anything has actually changed. But to be honest, it has. Uh, the discourse between the sides um, is horrible. You mentioned earlier, um, especially from Bengvir's party, by the way. You mentioned earlier uh, one of the MKs yesterday saying that. Uh, um, Gantz and Lapid need to be uh, arrested and uh, put on file for treason. Um, and uh, it's very, and even Ben Gvir, by the way, has horrible discourse um, and he acts like a little kid. And, you know, at the end of the day, the personal aspect of who is a member of the Knesset, we have a much more radical, we've never had a party of Ben Gvir. There are seven little Ben Gvirs in the Knesset right now. So that, of course, changes the atmosphere, it changes the discourse. And of course, the grave notion, the grave issues on the table, um, the, it, it, just a few hours ago, um, the Knesset approved a bill that would enable to uh, invoke the citizenship of uh, terrorists that are uh, given, um, that are paid by the Palestinian Authority. And there was a wide consensus. Of course, all of the uh, all of the Zionist parties had their own version of this bill, and basically all of the all of the parties supported it. But I don't think that there are going to be a lot of um, a lot of initiatives that the opposition will be able to support, especially if the coalition continues to promote this destructive law reform. Then the it'll be much more difficult to cooperate um, and to and promote things together and actually find a common ground. 
and unfortunately, the lead, yeah, the leadership Netanyahu is not condemning. Um, Netanyahu is not condemning uh, his own, you know, his own coalition members um, in strong enough terms. And uh, it's very there's a very very there's a sense of uh, tension. Um, and um, I don't know if it's only on Twitter because it's not necessarily in the in the streets, but the tensions on Twitter, if that's a, I would say, a, you know. Um, exaggerated microcosmos of the political system. Um, it's very difficult. It's it's actually quite scary. I mean, the the um, the, the exchanges between people um, are very very scary. Um, and you know, we've been through five elections. It's not as if we haven't had divisions um, and fights. But I think there's a sense this time that uh, it's uh, different. Thank you. Um, let me move on to um, to security issues for a moment. Um, we saw the the makeup was announced about a week ago of the security cabinet. Um, by my assessment, it looks like the the moderates have a slight majority in that in that inner security cabinet. I wonder how that will reflect on relations with the uh, with the with, when I say moderates, I mean kind of the people who are supported of Netanyahu, um, old timers uh, that he's brought back in. Um, Avi Dichter and uh, Tzachi Anegbi in, in, his, in his new role. Um, but what do you think the new government's policy will be with regard to the Palestinian Authority? We saw the, uh, the announcement of certain sanctions put on the, the authority, but obviously in the context of the, the violence that we saw throughout two, 2022 in the West Bank, um, what, what moves can we see uh, Netanyahu make? Um, and finally, I mean, I presume on that line that we've, it's still a year into his commitment that he made to President Trump not to advance annexation, but again, he may be pulled somewhere else in that direction as a result of his more uh, um, hardline partners. So how will he navigate that? The government's policy on the Palestinian Authority is going to be to weaken the Palestinian Authority. Uh, it's true that Netanyahu has surrounded his security cabinet with moderates, with relative uh, moderates that are supposed to kind of, you know, embrace Ben Gvir and Smotrich, uh, the radicals, but uh, um, the general atmosphere um, against the Palestinians and against Palestinian terror will be the same. There's a, they will feel, feel a need to show force. We also have a new defense minister who wants to prove himself. Um, so, and we also have, um, you know, I don't know when Ben Gvir will want to visit the Temple Mount once again, but I guess every time he does it, it will be tense. And we have, of course, the government is basically preparing for Ramadan. Netanyahu, that's, you know, that's the date, that's the target date um, of when security flames might, you know, exurban, might mm. go uh, crazy. And that's also like a target date to see if there will be some kind of shuffle. Uh, in the reshuffle in the government or change in the government, if Ben Gvir might want to leave. So far, I have to say that you know some people thought that when Ben Gvir enters the Homeland Security Minister, he might start ask, acting like a grown-up, um, but he's not. Um, he's acting like the same basic, uh, you know, basic uh, far-right extremist, uh, Jew, Arab hater. All he's been dealing with and since he entered the office has been things that have to do with, you know, Palestinian security prisoners and with um, these, uh, the demonstrations, the left-wing demonstrations. We haven't heard a, a word from him 
about the horrible violence uh, raging in, Isra in, in Israeli city streets, just like murders and stabbings and violent incidents. And basically for two weeks, he's been dealing only with a very far right radical agenda. Um, so I, I do expect that to be, you know, a tipping point or something that might definitely spark um, at some point. Now, regarding the whole diplomatic front, if we look around and, you know, if we listen to what Netanyahu says in English, he also says this in Hebrew, but he says this more and more in English, he wants to battle Iran and he wants to expand the Abraham Accords and perhaps make peace with Saudi Arabia. I don't know how he plans to do it with Ben Gvir and Smotrich in the government. Um, I think that the internal moves are counter effective uh, for Netanyahu's uh, attempt to have to, you know, to strengthen the alliance with the US against Iran or uh, any attempt uh, to make peace with Saudi Arabia. Um, as long as Israel is burning in the streets, I mean, as it seems not burning, but as long as the Israelis are out in the streets, then I don't think the Biden administration are going to give Netanyahu any slack on anything. Um, so I think it's going to be very complicated for him, but I think from his own logic, he thinks that he can control all the fires and eventually have everything send Dermer to the US and everything will be fine. I'm not sure. Yeah, we, we saw already, I mean, you, 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 you allude to it, but already um, um, his minute, newly appointed minister, his other kind of uh, top conciliary, um, Ron Derma, has already been sent to the US uh, and we're expecting, uh, expecting a, a visit of the Secretary of State to Israel sometime in the next, uh, in the next few weeks, I think. Um, I mean, I just wondered how, the, how this government is going to balance that. Do you anticipate that the US, uh, the US government will take a similar approach to previous democratic administrations that will expect some form of trade-off um, on the Palestinian front in order to advance on Iran? Or do you think the, Iran, the, the, the US may get it that there is a, a distinction of, uh, of, of missions here and that you need to combat both on, uh, on, a, on, a, on separate fronts? I don't think that's the linkage anymore. Um, the, even with the Bennett-Lapid government, they didn't create that linkage and there was much more well, much better ground to create that linkage in the previous government. Um, I think uh, we saw that the Biden administration basically adopted the framework of the Abraham Accords, uh, establishing the Negev Forum with uh, Yair Lapid, and that that will continue. Um, I do think, and and this is too, you know, you're asking me to predict things that I don't know if I can predict right now, but there could be a linkage between the Saudi um normalization and the iranian issue or anything i mean if anything can be linked it will be normalization with saudi arabia there's no reason i mean there's going to be enough reasons for the administration to fight with this government there's no real reason to re to fight with them about negotiations with the palestinians um they're going to have to stop expanded settlement expansion right they're going to have to stop um, military authorities being transferred to Benvir and Smotri. So I think, you know, if, if where are the priorities? I don't see the Palestinians themselves very high on the priority. That being said, there is the ICC procedures. And of course, I don't know where the US is going to find themselves there, but it's definitely going to be challenging 
to the relationship between Israel and the US, not because of Palestinians, but because of the internal things happening to Israeli democracy. The, what's happening now, is, and it's really, it's not about the Palestinians, it's about the shared values. Um, and if Israel promote, if the government does promote these moves, then, uh, you know, we're already hearing American Jewish uh, um, leaders um, concerned, very concerned of what's happening here. These American Jewish leaders will pressure the White House and the White House will pressure the, uh, the Israeli government. How far will it go? I don't know. I don't know how far the reform will go, but that's definitely going to be the major dynamic at, at the start. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much. Until now, I'm going to bring in my colleague, uh, Kira, um, who's going to take uh, some questions from the uh, from the audience now. And uh, Kira, over to you. Hi, thank you so much, Tal. That was extremely interesting. Um, I'm going to, the first question, I'm going to combine one or two that we've had. So following on from that one at the end on Saudi Arabia, uh, who will lead on Israel's foreign policy and what other priorities do you think Netanyahu is going to have in terms of foreign policy in, in this government? Um, well, it's, it, Netanyahu is going to lead the foreign policy because Netanyahu always leads the foreign policy, but he has Ron Dermer back with him on his side again. And this time, like in a... Uh, as a minister and not only as an advisor, uh, Dermer is going to handle, you know, the top geostrategic missions of Iran, the U.S., and the Abraham Accord countries, meaning that uh, the real foreign minister, Eli Cohen, will be left basically with Europe um, and perhaps Russia, Ukraine, which I predict Netanyahu will also want to handle himself. Um, so it's going to be Netanyahu and Dermer. Uh, he also appointed uh, Tachi Anegbi, the for, a former minister, to be the, the national security advisor. So Anegbi is also going to be probably um, quite active. Um, Netanyahu has gone on the record really stating that his two top priorities are Iran and peace with uh, other Arab countries. Besides that, I predicted he will try to maintain um, the kind of uh, status quo on Russia on the Russian Ukraine front. Um, kind of, perhaps we might see a bit more pro-Russian tilt, but I don't think it'll be dramatic uh, because I think that the geostrategic standing hasn't really changed. Uh, perhaps we'll see, you know, um, again uh, Netanyahu returning, you know, to his quest to uh, in Africa. Um, which uh, he did promote in the past uh, uh, before he left office, but at most it's going to be mostly the United States. Um, and also we know Netanyahu does not necessarily appreciate Europe that much himself. So uh, it's going to be uh, very much US Iran orientated on foreign policy. Um, there's another figure which we might mention who is President Herzog, who is also going to be kind of a, get an international whitewasher for Netanyahu. And he's probably going to be sent to the places where, you know, people are, where, where there's a lot of criticism towards uh, Israel. So I, I expect him to be the, you know, the softener envoy uh, of this government, uh, perhaps Jordan. Um, there are some places where the president will be accepted, I think a bit warmer than Netanyahu after his uh, relationship and his alliance with Ben Gvir. 
very much a prediction question. So do you think the coalition might be likely to collapse? And if so, over what and when might this happen? So that, of course, is the, uh, is the, is the million dollar question. How long will this last? So there is one notion that says it can last forever. Well, not forever, but for its full four years. Why? Because there's supposedly very, it's a very coherent coalition ideologically wise. Um, there's no real difference. They agree on the big things, right? Um, they agree on the big direction. They all agree. No one inside has actually any reason to be on the outside. <clears throat> it's not as if in any other government Bitsalis Smotrich will be finance minister or Itamar Benkvir will be um, will be a, a minister at all. You know, Netanyahu's allies and especially Benkvir and Smotrich had this very unique opportunity to reach these very top posts. In any other case, that Netanyahu wasn't under trial and we weren't in this horrible crisis, they would never be in these very top posts. So um, I don't think people will rush to bring it down. That being said. The other gamble is that they won't last too long. Uh, first of all, because, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons, because they they are, Dafka is we say in Hebrew, because they are so close ideologically, the internal competition between them and the incentive to each one to pull to their own side, to make themselves, to highlight themselves and to push themselves is even bigger. So, Ben Gvir wants to prove himself more than Smotrich, and Smotrich will see Ben Gvir and he'll be envious and he'll want to pull it as well. And you'll have uh, inside, you have horrible tensions inside Yaduta uh, Torah in the ultra Orthodox party, and you also have unrest inside the Likud. And if you judged by the way it's been working so far, the start, the, re the start, the, the, the first, the launch of this government, then it seems like it's undisciplined. And if it's undisciplined, it might fall apart very fast. And the question also is, what does Netanyahu want? So it, it's up to Netanyahu, basically. The government will not fall from the opposition. It'll fall from within. So the question is, will someone leave it? There might be some, someone could imagine a scenario in which Benvir is not very good in his job. And he doesn't really deliver what he promised to bring back the governance and security to Israeli streets. And at some point he might think it's better to be outside to find the, the reason to quit and be outside and to criticize the government from outside. On the other hand, Netanyahu, if there is a security uh, situation, a very bad security situation, then Netanyahu might decide that he wants to depart to, 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 to change Benvir or to call on Benny Gantz to enter the government and save the country from, uh, from a military escalation, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is, does Netanyahu do that? Because he wants to stop his trial. Or so the, so the main priority, the reason that Netanyahu established this government to begin with was to have a government that supports his moves towards the trial. So I don't think that Netanyahu will make any changes in the government before he has any progress on that front. Because of course, if Gantz joins, that means sacrificing uh, some of his plans. Uh, but the minute he succeeds to have some kind of progress with his uh, attempt to evade the trial, 
then I definitely expect that there could be some, some, he could try to make some kind of reshuffle. I remind you of 2016, when Netanyahu wanted to bring in, uh, uh, was holding very advanced negotiations with Bougie Herzog at the time, leader of the Labour Party. They were supposed to form a government and actually bring a breakthrough with Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, at the time, that was what's discussed. So I wouldn't be surprised if in about half a year, Netanyahu wants to bring a breakthrough to Saudi with Saudi Arabia and he approaches Benny Gantz and he says, look, you can come be a partner and let's form this government. So that's, that's definitely a plausible scenario in my uh, opinion. Thank you. Um, another question. Uh, on two-state solution and whether the elections show that this is not supported by a large majority of Israeli society. So sort of drawing uh, a link between those, uh, do you think that it shows that because of uh, people in government who are more supportive of settlements and annexation of the West Bank, do you think it shows that there's a, a route back to a two-state solution or has that idea been long parked? Well, the two-state solution has been slowly, you know, weakening for under the Netanyahu rule at all. It hasn't, it's also not discussed, to be honest. There's no real leader, political leader representing uh, the idea of the two-state solution. Yair Lapid did mention it at the UN um, in his UN speech this week, but he hasn't done anything to implement the two-state solution himself. He hasn't made any progress with the Palestinians. I don't think he's ever met with Mahmoud Abbas, to be honest. So. The two-state solution has not been present in Israeli politics for a while now also because it's not that's not the main political divide. It used to be the political divide used to be left and right over the two-state solution. Well, today the political divide is over yes or no Netanyahu. Um, so it's not part of the discourse whatsoever and, and it ha it's hardly brought up. Um, when you make a deep opinion polls and researches in then you it actually it's not it doesn't it's not as bad as it looks in the Knesset if you look at the Knesset it seems like there are about 70 MKs who are against the two-state solution but if you go to deep opinion polls by research tanks and think tanks then you see that still between 45 to 55 Israelis do support separation from the Palestinians so it's also a lot about the terms, the terminology, and what the, what they're using. And to be honest, Israelis have not had leaders who have used the terminology of two-state solution proudly explaining that this is the right thing to be done because it has a because they're all afraid of Netanyahu and have been you know shadowed by Netanyahu's foreign policy dominance. B because um, it hasn't been on the agenda. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily dead forever in the public discourse, because I do think that after, if that ever comes, if that ever happens, after Netanyahu, the Netanyahu era is over, then I think the political system will reorganize and it will have to reorganize over, or at least I hope it'll reorganize over ideology. And then I do think that the two staters could reapproach or could reemerge um, in, in the political discourse. But yes, at the time, um, most Israelis, if you ask them the way that way, they will say they don't support the two-state solution. And there's, there's one thing should be said also about the young generation in Israel. It's a generational thing, uh, as opposed to other places in the world where the young, gen young generation is very much progressive and liberal. 
The young generation in Israel tilts to the right very much, especially on security and Palestinian issues. That is because they have never seen a real process. Like I know I grew up in a time in the 90s. I have a notion of what it looks like to have a diplomatic process and treat the Palestinian as partners. These youngsters, whoever was born after 2000 has never actually seen the Palestinian as partners, but rather as an as enemy. And most of their inter, most of their encounters with Palestinians have been around terror. So that has definitely influenced the young generation. And again, the leadership who has not talked about uh, the two-state solution enough. Um, I do say, sadly, that as long as Netanyahu is the issue, it won't be part of the issue. Uh, it won't be part of the discourse because the anti-Netanyahu front includes both annexationists and two-staters. Um, and if they talk about the two-state solution, it will divide them. By the way, just like we saw the Bennett-Lapid government eventually was just like Netanyahu in its policies towards the Palestinians, perhaps Benny Gantz, which a bit more open and gave more, um, gave some ease, eased the Palestinians' lives to it, but there wasn't any dramatic change in policy towards the Palestinians in the previous government. Um, and I just have to hope that uh, perhaps uh, it'll come back. It goes back to also to the judicial reform. Israeli politics are very populist. Most Israelis do not necessarily understand the details of the judicial reforms, the meaning of it. Um, everything is politicized. Everything is being debated through the lens of yes or no Bibi. There's no real debate. By the way, there is, a, there is room for changes in, Israeli, in the Israeli judicial system. And, you, and it's legitimate to talk about them 70 years after it was established. You can change things in the system. The problem is that it's connected with Netanyahu's situation and with the whole crisis. So there's no real discourse. There's no any serious discourse. It's all politicized and through the lens. And the same has to go to the two-state solution. Israelis don't understand the meaning of the demographic uh, danger. They don't understand the meaning that in 50 years we might be a, a one state without doing anything will turn into a one state or an apartheid state. It's not discussed. It's not explained. Um, of course, we are bad journalists, so don't explain it enough. Uh, but uh, um, but at large, I think that the you know the fact that there's the yes or no BB issue is so big and after five elections, it's so definitive for every Israeli, that kind of overshadows everything. So if Bibi says the reform is good, then his camp will say it's good. And if um, Bibi says the reform is bad, then his camp will say it's bad. And there's no real exchange of ideas. And to be honest, that's the, I think there's no real dialogue. That's the main, that's, that's one of the main frightening points in this situation. But let's end on some positive notes somehow. No, thank you. Uh, well, hopefully the next one uh, is a bit more positive. Uh, for the last question, uh, what do you see the role of the growing technology and startup sector playing uh, in Israel over the next few years? Do you think it's going to be something that Netanyahu is going to be pushing quite keenly to make sure that it plays a bigger role? So what do you see that industry playing uh, a part in Israel going forwards? 
So definitely that's our main engine. That's our main hope. That's our main uh, pride. Uh, and it's also Netanyahu's main pride. Uh, he will be promoting uh, the high-tech industry. industry. Um, he understands the economic importance of it. He understands the international importance of it. And he definitely understands the technology, the technological importance of it for our own uh, defense. Um, that being said, I do think that some of the changes he's promoting at the moment could be, uh, could have effects on the Israeli high-tech industry. If there are changes in Israeli democracy, then um, the high-tech industry could react to that. We already had one letter of, um, a rare letter from uh, the chief, the, chief uh, the, the main owners of the big high-tech companies in Israel, who warned, uh, who, who wrote a letter in protest of the uh, override clause that is uh, presented and who are also, who some of the plans that the government is promoting. Um, and I think that um, they, the, the high-tech industry could definitely suffer from some of these, uh, some of, some of these uh, things. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see how Netanyahu, you know, balances uh, the two of them, because again, also um, the fact that Israel is that the, the, the reform, the planned reform in the judicial system is this is on another topic. But I mentioned the ICC. If Israel is going through a judicial reform, uh, which is uh, weakening the Supreme Court, this will have a direct impact on any international move that the Palestinians are promoting against Israel and the ICC or anywhere else. This could uh, weaken uh, the defense that the uh, IDF soldiers uh, will have in the international arena against international you know, warrants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's why I do hope that at some point Netanyahu will you know, at least tame some of, uh, some of Levine's uh, suggestions and plans. Uh, but uh, also we should remember that back to the high-tech industry, that the high-tech industry is pays, you know, is a big part of Israeli economy. And if there is a feeling that the burden, the tax burden on the secular, um, on the secular uh, population is rising and growing, then that could also leave, uh, lead to some changes in the high-tech industry. Great. Uh, well, let me first of all thank Kira for uh, for hosting the second half. And Tal, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, but um, I wanted to say something optimistic to end. Sure. So, A, I'm an optimistic, so I'm trying to keep optimists. And that means that um, the last government, when the Bennett-Lapid government was established, then Netanyahu and his supporters were warning that this is the end of Israel as we know it. And now his... Uh, opponents are shouting the same. It wasn't, I hope it wasn't the end of Israel then, and I hope it wasn't the end of Israel now. It isn't the end of Israel now. Um, and I do want to say that Israel has a very, very strong civil society. Um, and uh, I do think that, uh, uh, um, I hope that uh, the civil Awakening will not lead to a real unrest or chaos, but I do think that uh, at the end of the day, things tend to be a bit less bad as we predict them to, and that we are a bit, everyone is a bit hysterical, and we just need to take a deep breath and hope it'll be better.
Well, let's, here's, here's hoping. Tal, thank you so much for all your in, incisive analysis. It was really appreciated. And thank you everyone for joining us and stay tuned for future BICOM events in the new year. Wishing everyone a very happy 2023. And uh, as Tal says at the end, kind of more positive outcomes that we can talk about celebrating, celebrating peace or- uh, I hope or that more... I won't turn out to be, you know, this naive person eventually, the fool who was fooled by her own, uh, by my own optimism, but it's better to be optimist at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Great, thanks Tal, thank you everybody. Mm -hmm.